Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your composer host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran. And this podcast is my way of sharing composing and songwriting advice from all sorts of creative music makers. Every episode is free to download or stream at ComposerQuest.com or on iTunes or Stitcher. I'm very excited to bring you today's episode with Dame Evelyn Glennie. Evelyn lost her hearing by the age of 12, but that didn't stop her from becoming a percussion virtuoso, a three-time Grammy winner, and a Dame Commander of the British Empire. Over the years, she's found a way to listen using her whole body. And there are a lot of interviews with Evelyn about how that works, so I recommend checking those out, especially the documentary Touch the Sound, which the music you're hearing comes from. In my talk with Evelyn, we focus on her composing and improvising process. She shares some really interesting ideas about dynamics and writing for percussion. She's also collaborated with a ton of talented people, and we talk about her collaborations with Bjork, with composer John Corigliano, and with guitarist and improviser Fred Frith. Stick around till the end of the episode to hear what your fellow Composer Quest listeners wrote for our forehand piano quest. Now, let's get to my talk with Dame Evelyn Glennie. And Evelyn was joined by Brenda Gillian, who helped interpret during our phone conversation. Hi, Evelyn. Hi. Thank you so much for being on the podcast here. It's an honor to have you on. You're welcome. Evelyn thinks it might be good if she just goes through the list of questions and then we sure. talk to you afterwards. Sure, yeah, we can do that. All okay. right, here we go. So with the first one, what tips do you have for composers who want to create more rhythmically interesting pieces? Um, well, interestingly, I don't really divide the melodic aspect with the rhythm. And by that, I mean... I see melody in a rhythmic way and I see rhythm in a melodic way. And a good example is a piece called Concertstück for snare drum and orchestra by the Icelandic composer Auskul Mauson. So it's basically for snare drum, snare drum solo with orchestra. When you look at the music on the page, basically all you see is the rhythmic aspect But when you actually digest it as a musician and as a sound creator, you see very much melody there. And what I often do is take something like a violin piece or a piano piece or a flute piece. And if you play that piece of music on a snare drum, suddenly it makes your snare drumming much more melodic. Question two, when you're freeform improvising, what's going through your head? Well, basically nothing And I really mean that in that you're standing at the side of the stage waiting to go on and you have absolutely no idea which direction your feet will be heading. By that, I mean which instruments you'll be heading towards. And that's quite fascinating, actually, because you know that the audience don't have any program notes because it's going to be an improvisation. So in a way, the audience and the performers are actually starting from the same point in that none of us know what's actually going to happen. Um, What kind of influence does your hearing impairment have on the way you compose? Well, I don't really, really know, because it's really what I'm just used to. I suppose that because I rely quite a lot on vibration 
and experiencing that sort of journey of sound after I've struck something, then, you know, certainly when I compose, I'm actually quite comfortable letting something ring on or vibrate before then attaching it to another sound. Because there's no such thing as silence that actually if you want something to stop resonating, then what we call silence becomes actually a really powerful sound. So I'm quite comfortable with that. And I think it is possibly because of, you know, being able to digest that sound through the whole body, really. Um, Next question. After collaborating with so many composers and performers, which ones stick out as being the most influential to your own music making? I have to say that each situation is very different and, you know, pretty rewarding, especially when you are face-to-face with a composer or another performer. For example, when I was working with Björk, you know, she is a fantastic musician who, believe it or not, does not read music very well, but she has so many interesting ideas and she's a very spontaneous performer. So as a kind of sound creator, whereby I have a lot of instruments, she's completely flexible and was completely flexible in how she approached those sounds from the instruments. And so that type of collaboration worked really well. And it's that complete openness that's very important. With composers such as John Carigliano, I mean, that was a fascinating collaboration because I don't think I've ever spent a whole day specifically with a composer who actually flew over to the UK from the US to deal only with the exploration of mallets for his concerto. Literally the whole day was spent experimenting with mallets, deciding on the types of mallets used and so on. You know, that's something that I would do normally by myself. And when we come to the first rehearsal with the orchestra or something, I'd then say to the composer, well, how about these mallets? But he wants to be extremely clear about the sound colors he had in his mind and to try and get those into some sort of real state. When a composer or a performer has this feeling that they want to push their own boundaries in what they do and not just basically write something that they've sort of written before for the instruments, but really keep exploring the possibilities and have that curiosity, I think that really suits my kind of makeup as a performer. Question five, what have you learnt in writing music for film, TV, etc.? Well, I think what I've learned is that is to always expect the unexpected and that you're never really in control of what you're actually writing because, of course, it's not your decision as to, you know, eventually what is used. And you're often dealing with people who may not necessarily have musical terminology at the tip of their tongue, but yet you've somehow got to decipher what it is they're meaning for you to write And things can just change all the time during the process in that you're asked to change things up to the very, very last minute. And you very rarely get more time to work with. Usually it's actually cut. 
bits, a lot of the writing that I do, it's more library music. So it means that I can really explore the huge collection of instruments I have. You know, I can write basically in my own time. And if you have time to write, let's say in July, you might think to yourself, right, I'm going to concentrate on Christmas type music, or I'm going to concentrate on children's music or wildlife type music and so on. Yeah. Are there any other projects you're working on right now that you would want to mention? Oh, we've lots of things going on. Um, one collaboration we have is with um, it's a double concerto for a percussion, piano and orchestra by a New Zealander, John Sathis. This is really one of the few, in fact, I can only name two double concertos for percussion and piano. And John Sathis is a wonderful way of almost talking about what was mentioned in the first question, where, you know, the rhythm becomes the melody and the melody becomes incredibly rhythmic. And very often in these kind of collaborations, often the percussion is like the accompaniment and the piano is at the forefront and so on. But he really understands the rhythmic force of both instruments and the percussiveness, as well as, of course, the more melodic side of things and seeing rhythm with that legato line. An interesting development we have in Indianapolis with the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra in November is the U.S. premiere of the first ever concerto for Alufone. And I'm sure if you type in Alufone, you'll see lots of information about that instrument. It was first featured in the opening ceremony of the Olympics in London in 2012. And the Danish composer Anders Koppel wrote a concerto for it, which I premiered just this past January. And so the U.S. premiere will happen in November. I have a big birthday next year, and so what I've decided to do is to create a project that we're calling 50-50, and by that we mean we're going to ask 50 composers to write 50 bars of music for percussion. Obviously, the pieces, well, depending on the tempo, of course, um, would be relatively short, but this would give a, a really interesting little selection of sorbets for all percussion players to delve into that sounds really cool. How would it be connected as a whole? Do you have some ideas of how, or are you okay with it sounding separate? Yes, they would be completely different pieces, and that's the, the kind of idea. 
is to ask, obviously, 50 very different composers. And although we may have to give guidance as to which instruments would be used, what we do want is to use basically one instrument for each piece of music. So it could be, you know, a composer might write for snare drum for 50 bars, or they may write for a marimba, or for a cymbal, or a triangle, or a tambourine, or something. So, you know, would give guidance as regards to that, but then what they actually write is entirely up to them. Cool. That sounds like a really cool project. Mm-hmm. I was thinking you meant that each composer would write one bar of a 50-bar piece, which is why oh, I, I was confused. <laughs> Oh, now that's interesting. Maybe I could do that for my birthday in 10 years' time. It'll have to be the 51. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I read somewhere that you have 1,800 instruments or more. Is there one in particular that you would say is your favorite overall to perform with? No, not at all. And really, I have this concept whereby, you know, whatever's in front of me, that's my favorite because I decided to be a percussionist as opposed to a marimbist or a snare drummer or a timpanist or something. So therefore that means that whatever is in front of me, if it's a triangle or a marimba or a woodblock, that has to be my favorite. So the same amount of energy and attention is put into that particular surface. Yeah. I was listening to a little bit of Winter Wonderland with the cellist Mm -hmm. Philip Shepard. One track that I really liked is Stellar Dendrites. Do you remember back to that specific track, how you went about... (laughs) I don't really (laughs) know. It's such a long time ago. Oh, sure, sure. Part of the issue with me is that I, in fact, rarely, rarely listen to my own material. Once it's done, that's that. And I have a, a kind of a, 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 not a problem, but I just have no inclination to listen to anything that I've done. It's almost like a frozen moment in time. And part of that is because you're always nitpicking at things. You know, you always feel, oh, I could have done that better, or oh, I would like to change that, and so on. So I always find it extremely difficult to listen to anything. I mean, even the recent recording that actually won a a Grammy of, of John Crigliano's Percussion Concerto, I still haven't listened to that, and I probably never will. <laughs> it's just too hard for me to do it, really. Well, that's kind of a nice attitude to have towards it, though, I feel like, because then you're constantly thinking of what is coming next or what is in the the moment, I guess, as you're working on something. I think that's true, actually. I think it, for, for me, I mean, it, 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 this is just my way, um, it works for me because I don't really want to be reminded. And it's the same when you have to relearn a piece of music. For example, with Joan Tower's Percussion Concerto, you know, I'm, I'm kind of relearning that. And under no circumstances am I even vaguely trying to remember what I did the last time I played it, you know, which was the premiere. So... I want to see it as a brand new piece of music. I want to have brand new feelings towards it. I'm not trying to remember which mallets I used or how I set things up or anything. It just has to be now my thoughts about it at this point in time. Hmm. 
I was wondering, as someone who is not <clears throat> not a percussion player myself, but is interested in writing more interesting percussion parts, what advice would you have for a composer if you were commissioning a piece from them? Well, I think the important thing really is to talk to as many players as possible, not just one player, but several players from lots of different backgrounds. Just explore the instruments with them and just gather as much sort of information, practical information. Look at certain scores. You know, that's always a good thing, but not to see that as, oh, yes, it has to be like this or it has to be like that. Because a lot of the challenges composers have is notating for percussion, even for marimba, can you believe? And that's an important issue to really talk about. Because when you're writing for multi-percussion, you really want it to be as clean and straightforward and unfussy as possible on the page. Yeah, I have struggled with trying to write percussion parts in finale, trying to figure out what percussion symbol to use or what line on the staff to use. Um, but I know. I mean, if you look at the score, if you're writing for multi-percussion, looking at a score such as James McMillan's Veni Veni Manual, where he uses quite a big setup and he's using the instruments one after the other, you know, almost like a keyboard. And basically how I set that up is, is thinking of it like a keyboard. So because he's written the low sounds on the lower part of the stave, the higher ones on the higher part, but he's used maybe at times up to, I can't remember exactly, but four staves or something, oh. that it gives you a really good idea as regards to the phrasing because you can see the direction of what that phrase is doing because he's written the low sounds in the low part and then as they get higher, it just all makes sense to the eye. And it means that, for example, with the kick bass drum, you know, that's written down with the low tom-toms and so on. So I therefore put the bass drum on my left foot. Sometimes when I've seen the piece played, a percussionist might think, well, they're right-handed, so therefore the bass drum should be on the right foot. Well, therefore, you've got this kind of punchy low sound coming out with all the high sounds and it, it in the wrong kind of direction, as it were. You know, it's not right or wrong, but it's just an odd direction. And so for percussion players, I, I think we have to be quite flexible in our minds as regards to how we play something so that you can be left-handed or right-handed, left-footed or right-footed, you know, depending on what that piece of music requires. Mm -hmm. Well, I was watching part of Touch the Sound, the documentary, and it's just really uh, powerful seeing your collaboration with Fred Frith, mm -hmm. just seeing how you two communicated. It's mm -hmm. interesting. Could you talk a little bit about A Little Prayer, the piece that you came up with? Mm -hmm. Well, that was a pre-written piece that I wrote at school, and that was just something whereby at school we had a little three-octave xylophone. I'd never come across a marimba at that point before, but I was just experimenting with four mallets. And so I just wrote a very simple harmonic sequence and basically was practicing trying to get my rolls with the four mallets as smooth as possible on this little xylophone, which, of course, had no real resonance to it. 
So it was a good way to really try and get legato playing. And anyway, as I was sort of practicing that, you know, some people would say, oh, that sounds like a chorale. And I thought, well, yeah, I suppose it does, really. So then I just developed it into a, a very simple piece of music. And so when they said, oh, it sounds like a, a chorale, oh, it sounds like a prayer. So I just called it a little prayer. But then once I did come across the marimba, of course, the piece was a completely different piece of music because of the resonance and the depth of the marimba and the breadth of sound. And so I decided that when Fred and I were in the derelict sugar factory for the touch of sound, you know, I thought the acoustics in there were so amazing. So I just started playing that piece and we decided to have Fred up on a completely different level in the factory. I feel like sometimes the last thing I put into a piece is dynamics, but it seems like that is constantly on your mind as a performer and improviser. Do you have any advice as far as dynamics go in structuring your pieces? Well, I think dynamics are much more profound um, and exaggerated in improvisation than they are in an actual written-down composition if you're performing with other people. So if I'm performing a concerto, I know that, you know, I've got to consider other musicians in that orchestra. So there's always going to be a certain amount of compromises happening. But, you know, for example, at the moment, I'm working on Michael Doherty's Dream Machine. Now, I have three movements out of four, so the piece isn't complete yet, and I don't have a full score yet. So although I have, you know, my parts that say loud or soft or whatever dynamic is written on that page, I haven't a clue what those dynamics actually mean without seeing the full score. I have no idea which mallets to use, what is happening within the orchestra. So... It's a really interesting kind of scenario because you're only able to learn the notes, your basic kind of gut feeling towards the piece. But dynamically, I've absolutely no idea what soft means or what loud means. So until that comes, you know, there's a massive part of the piece that's missing, really. But I always feel that any piece of music must have a climatic point. And it's an obvious thing to say but that climax doesn't have to be the loudest part of the piece. It could be the softest part of the piece, or it could be the most lingering part of the piece dynamically. So that dynamic could just be an MF or an MP or something. But if it lingers, then that's a very powerful thing. So the control of dynamics, I think, is one of the most important things that any musician could work towards. And that can only be worked towards within the room 
the, the space that you're actually performing in. So what works in the privacy of your own four walls, you know, you have to get the idea that you're not actually practicing, but you're actually rehearsing. So you have in mind that you're in a cathedral or you're in a wet acoustic or you're in a dry acoustic or you're in a, an outdoor venue or whatever in order to rehearse projecting that sound. Yeah, that's really interesting to think about. You mentioned silence earlier. How do you incorporate silence into your pieces? Well, I think obviously it depends on the audience listening skills and it depends on the actual piece of music. And interestingly, you know, I have a recital coming up in Italy and I'm just going to experiment with the piece having never written a note for percussion by James Tenney. And this is an interesting piece because all it is, and when I say all it is, it's just this massive crescendo and massive diminuendo over a period of time that you might decide. So you can have like, you know, some people may play it over five minutes or 10 minutes, 17 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever you feel. Now, obviously, my instrument will be the actual venue that I'm performing in, the room that I'll be performing in, it will determine how long this piece will be and the audience will determine how long it will be. The quality of instrument will determine how long it will be. So I'm not going to go in there and say, right, I'm going to play this piece for 10 minutes or however long, you know, this is what I've practiced in my own practice room, so this is how it's going to be. It just simply won't work like that. And, you know, a huge part of that piece will be about giving the illusion of sound to the audience. So the first few moments could literally be silence, but yet they'll experience movement from the mallets so that they're imagining that there really is sound. And when they see the length of that crescendo and then what is a lot harder, the length of the diminuendo, you know, that should be an interesting experience. And you want it to be an experience. You don't want to for people to say, oh, yes, I like that piece of music, or no, I didn't like that piece of music, but more, wow, that was an experience, and that's quite a different thing. Yeah. What you're saying about the climax not having to be the loudest part is interesting, That, and I haven't really thought about it that way. I've done a little bit of freeform improvising, and I feel like our tendency was always to do, like that piece you're talking about where it's... Uh, large crescendo and then we reach the climax and then bring it back down but do you have other ideas of how to structure a piece if that makes sense <laughs> well heavens i'm not quite sure really i mean i think that it's one of the things that i've learned about improvising is there's always the tendency that if someone crescendos then you also crescendo if someone goes soft then you also go soft and it was really Fred Frith who made me aware that, well, actually, one person can be extremely soft, the other person, therefore, might interject with something that's extremely loud or the complete opposite of a type of sound, like a resonant sound or a dry sound and things like that. And that can have a huge impact on a climax. It can have a huge impact on the fact that you think you know what's going to happen, but actually it could be the complete opposite. Thank you. 
able to sort of use the palette of sound colors that we have, then it can be a really interesting experience when, for example, if I write for, I don't know, just a collection of music boxes where the frequencies are so tiny and they're high and they're so delicate, but underneath you just have this feeling of a sound that's actually of a, a very low frequency. And, you know, that can change the whole mood of a piece, really. I know I haven't quite answered your question about, you know, how you can create a climax, but it's probably the the fact that you can work on something that's unexpected or that are polar opposites, really. I think that could be quite interesting. Yeah. Oh, the what you're saying about the music boxes reminds me of when I was in Tanzania. I was at a convent and we were hearing like over a hundred female singers, the nuns in this choir. And it was amazing hearing all their high frequencies going on. And then any notes that were below that were kind of accented versus like normally you think of the higher notes as being accented or I did anyways. And suddenly the, bass even though it's very high up started standing out more than the highest notes mm-hmm. i mean some pieces that i've played in the past have had for example the orchestra having to hum or just you know sing a few notes and well i mean we're used to having orchestras and then the choir behind and that's a wonderful experience but somehow when you have the orchestra actually creating the vocalizations, it's suddenly a very unexpected thing. So it's kind of the placement of the sound as well that I find interesting. Yeah. Well, what you're saying also about one player crescendoing, the other player being softer, that made me think back to when I was first writing music for orchestra. And mm-hmm. I would put different dynamic markings in each part of the orchestra. And my professor said, people don't do that for orchestra, which I thought at the time I just accepted. But now it's kind of interesting to me that people think of the orchestra as one instrument. So you keep the dynamics the same for all instruments. But Absolutely. Hi, Charlie. I'm going to have to interrupt now because we have another call coming oh, in. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Evelyn and Brenda. Thank you for making this call possible. No problem. Charlie. Well, we've, Thank we've you. beaten the technology, so that's been great. <laughs> yep. Okay, Charlie. Have a lovely weekend. Yep. You too. Take care. Yep. Take care now. Bye-bye. Yep. Bye. Bye. That does it for my talk with Dame Evelyn Glennie. You can hear more of her music at evelyn.co.uk and you can follow her on Twitter at Dame Evelyn. If you're curious about any composers or pieces Evelyn talked about in this episode, check the show notes at composerquest.com Evelyn. You can always get in touch with me by emailing me, charlie at composerquest.com or find ComposerQuest on Twitter or Facebook. Thanks, as always, to my generous patrons for helping support this podcast. If anyone listening is also interested in becoming an official Composer Quest patron, please visit patreon.com slash charlie. Thanks for considering it. 
I'm going to get to the forehand piano quest results here in a minute, but first, I have a bunch of people to thank for the recordings I used in this episode. First, thanks to Leslie Hills at Skyline Productions for A Little Prayer, Evelyn and Fred Frith's collaboration from the documentary Touch the Sound. You can find out more about the film at skyline.uk.com. For more of Fred Frith's music, visit fredfrith.com. Thanks also to John Sothis for letting me use a sample from his piece View from Olympus, which Evelyn will be performing. This recording is of the Christchurch Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Mark Tadai, with pianist Michael Houston and percussionist Leonard Sikofsky. For more of John Sothis's music, visit facebook.com slash John Sothis Composer. And Sothis is spelled P-S-A-T-H-A-S. Thanks to Kai Stensgard at Aluphone.com for the recording of Anders Koppel's Concerto for Aluphone and Orchestra. And I'll spell these so you can do some Google searching. Aluphone is A-L-U-P-H-O-N-E. And Koppel is K-O-P-P-E-L. And finally, thanks to John Crigliano for the sample of his Grammy-winning piece, The Conjurer. Visit johncrigliano.com to get a copy. And for helping me get permission for this recording, I want to also thank Andrew M. Lee, Nick D'Angiolillo at Noxos Recordings, and Peggy Manastra and Kevin McGee at G. Shermer. The recording is used by permission of G. Shermer, Inc. All right, now for the moment you've been waiting for. The results of our Composer Quest quest. If you've been following the podcast, you know that I challenge you listeners every two months or so to complete composing quests. The last quest was to write music for Forehand Piano in honor of Star Wars Day. May the 4th be with you. I'm happy to say our concert went very well, thanks to our talented pianists, Franco Holder and Susan Sue. I want to share a bit of each of these eight original pieces we received. So take a trip with me now to the Underground Music Cafe here in St. Paul, Minnesota. Our first original piece is composed by Mary Beth Putlin, who is here tonight. And so Mary Beth, come on up and talk about your piece. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. My piece is entitled Excelsior, and the title actually comes from the Latin to continue upwards forever. And so this is his piece, Countryside Stomp, which he incorporated the number four. This is four days in the life of a four-headed giant. Um, 
I wrote this piece, uh, it's titled Prelude for Four Hands, and Charlie sort of told me this in late time, so I had almost like half the time to compose it, and so that's why it's in 2-4. But I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> things that cause the force to happen in Star Wars. I just woke up one day with that word in my head and I thought of all these little things that build up to something else that's bigger than it, the force. So I thought, well, I'll just use small little rhythms, uh, simple rhythms, and then turn them into something bigger over time throughout the piece. Another thing I wanted to point out about my composing technique in this one is that I took this intro rhythm, which is very simple on just two notes, and as the piece progresses, that same rhythm is converted into a more melodic line. Our final composition of the night was by Daniel Nass. The piece is titled Blood Moon Rag because I started sketching it out when the Blood Moon happened. It doesn't have a lot to do with Star Wars, but in hearing the Cantina song, it sounds like something you might hear at the Mos Eisley Cantina.
Thanks again to Tim Cheesebrow and the Underground Music Cafe for hosting our concert, and thanks to Susan Sue and Franco Holder for performing our pieces. Visit ComposerQuest.com to stay in the loop about more composing quests like this one. Until next time, happy composing. Thank you.